MDMA, also known as ecstasy, used to be a party drug, but it's also been used by psychotherapists since the 60s to heal people. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is Sarah Bacon. She is a writer, rare disease patient, and advocate. Most recently, New York Magazine published her COVID-19 related story titled, I'm in the high risk 2%. It's exhausting. The story link is in the show notes. We asked Sarah, who lives in New York City, but is taking refuge in a Florida hotel, to talk about life during COVID-19. Additionally, I was particularly excited to talk about her truly remarkable Washington Post story titled, Anxious and Depressed as a Scary Disease Destroyed Her Lungs, She Turned to Ecstasy for Relief. Here's what happened. The link is in the show notes too. In that story, Sarah explains that a healer she sees from time to time to quell her anxiety suggested she try MDMA-guided therapy. The drug, which was banned in 1985, does have risky side effects, Sarah wrote. In 2017, however, the Food and Drug Administration granted MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, a breakthrough therapy designation for post-traumatic stress disorder, setting it on a fast track for review and clinical trials and potential approval. When Sarah's story was published in the Washington Post, phase three clinical trials were underway across 16 sites in the United States, Canada, and Israel. Participants have included first responders, military vets, and flood and sexual assault victims. In the story, Sarah goes on to write that, quote, My first MDMA-guided therapy session was among the more intense days of my life. Okay, let's get the conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Thank you so much for being here on the Mental Health Download. And really, my first question is, you know, tell us what life is like for you right now. Sure. Um, I, I actually escaped from New York City, my home, Harlem, to Florida. I had already planned to come down to rural Florida and decided to get out of Dodge sooner rather than later. On um, March 3rd, my doctor texted me and said, I don't want you on the subway. I don't want you going to the theater. I don't want you taking Amtrak. I don't want you flying and considerably curbed my life in the city. And that's really when panic for me started to set in. Um, I had been kind of circulating around town with um, a scarf around my face because I couldn't find masks and, uh, you know, going to numerous drugstores to find extra hand sanitizers and um, zinc lozenges, which a, a molecular virologist who'd studied COVID in the 70s had suggested for curtailing symptoms, should you, should you feel you have symptoms. Um, and the shelves were sold out, and I found myself thinking, all of these doomsday preppers are probably a lot healthier than I am, and um, why isn't there any guidance on rationing these types of supplies even in early March, I felt that way before all the shelter-in-place policies were going on, just because I always have to be vigilant, and this situation requires a lot more vigilance. And now I want to talk about your COVID-19-related story published in New York Magazine titled, I'm in the High-Risk 2%. 
it's exhausting. Tell us some more about that story and what do you hope people take away from it? So that was really, uh, really just a narrative about living in a state of heightened anxiety all the time and heightened vigilance when there's not a pandemic or a global health crisis or a shelter in place policy and what the advent of COVID-19 in New York City, my home, did to spike that anxiety. I drove south to rural Florida where there are more horses than people, no beaches, no crowded beaches for me, um, where the vitamin D could boost my immune system and where the warmer weather was less amenable to COVID-19 and uh, have stayed here and have extended my stay until it feels safe to go back home. So how isolated are you? It's, uh, it's okay. Um, it's, uh, I'm right now in Howard Johnson's studio suite. <laughs> and um, I have a friend nearby who has a big farm and um, with horses. So I go over there every day. I'll take a walk. I'll ride a little bit. And so I get some sun, I get some exercise, I have no contact really with anyone. I go to the grocery store with my nitrile gloves, you know, pump gas with the gloves and then come back home and write. I'm working on a book. So the plan was just leave and write as much as you can, but go to a place where you feel safe. So I've been able to get a lot of writing done. And the the book is actually, it's called Living with Zebras. And it's about people who have ultra rare diseases who have advanced science to save themselves or their children. So it's actually been a very productive time, except for when I tune into satellite radio and hear presidential press conferences and so on. This weekend, I just turned it all off. Um, You know, I told my kids that, you know, we're not, we're going to focus on doing puzzles and like they're dude, I I went out, I'm working from home. And I, uh, before this, that my kids were doing a yoga video uh, via YouTube. Um, And I was just so happy because they, I think they understand that they need to take care of their own mental health during this time as well. Absolutely. And you know, there've been so many interesting social sort of virtual and social upshots, free dance classes, free hip hop dance classes online, um, virtual yoga, as you mentioned. I just saw a viral video of the, of a Philharmonic in Amsterdam um, with every musician in their own home recorded Beethoven's Ninth. And it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, and families are spending more time with each other and um, taking walks six feet apart. Um, So there are some beautiful upshots and it'll be interesting to see what sticks. Okay, Sarah, now I want you to explain your journey with your rare disease and then tell us about the turning point, which included reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. So I have an ultra rare lung disease called lymphangioleomyomatosis, Um, 24 letters. It's L-A-M, LAM for short. It is a disease that only affects women. It's estrogen sensitive. There are approximately 3,000 of us in the U.S., so that means one for every two million women, which is the same likelihood as getting struck by lightning or killed by a tornado. 
And what it does to me is um, smooth muscle cells proliferate uncontrollably and they trigger cystic growth inside my lungs and abdomen. So it affects the lungs and abdomen of women. Some women only have cysts in their lungs. Some women only have cysts in their abdomens. Um, so symptoms change. My lungs are currently 39% capacity. So those cysts supplant oxygen. Um, so it manifests as breathlessness. Um, I can't go to high altitudes. I use oxygen when I sleep, when I do cardio. I am lucky for a ultra rare disease patient because my disease, LAM, has a treatment and it's, it's among the 5%, only 5% of all rare diseases have treatments at all. Back in uh, 2017, in the spring of 2017, my quarterly pulmonary lung function test showed that my lung capacity was 37%. When you have these quarterly lung function tests, in my case, they're quarterly because my lamb is um, aggressive. Um, that's not the case for all women. And the statistical capacity of going on the national lung transplant list is 30%. So I had been in the low 40s. I had done a pilot trial at Columbia University. My lung capacity dropped as a result of that pilot trial because I had to go off of my regular treatment for the trial. And once I dropped below 40%, extreme anxiety set in. And I passed a threshold psychologically whereby I could not control my anxiety. So the summer of 2017, I was kind of casting about for something that could help me regain serenity and acceptance. And I read Michael Pollan's book and it really struck a chord. I mean, I had been in talk therapy to alleviate my anxiety. It wasn't doing the trick. I meditated. That wasn't doing the trick as it used to. Vedic meditation. I read the book and I thought, huh, this sounds like something I should consider. So I ran it by my clinician, uh, my lamb specialist at Columbia. Anything that she has not prescribed as a treatment, I run by her. And um, she did some research and um, I was focused on MDMA guided therapy, which if you recall, Pollen didn't discuss at length in the book because he had a um, heart condition. I think it was tachycardia or some sort of irregular heartbeats and MDMA can have adverse reactions, um, uh, can trigger heart problems um, if you already have an underlying condition. So he hadn't gone into that much depth, but I was less interested in LSD because I've never, I have a very fertile mind to begin with. And I didn't um, think, I didn't trust the hallucinogenic aspect of it. Back in um, New York, I met up with a an energy healer who I had seen over the years from time to time, again, looking for a more visceral um, solution. And I mentioned, I read this book, what do you know about it? And she said, actually, I've just teamed up with a practitioner who guides people through MDMA therapy. You should talk to her and see if you like her. So I did that. I met this um, woman via Skype. 
Um, she's based in Europe and comes to the New York area four times a year for two to three weeks at a time to work with clients. And um, we just had uh, an introductory conversation. She asked me about my past history with both recreational drugs, with psychiatric medications, with psychotherapy, with other modalities of therapy. Um, it was a very wide ranging and thorough kind of evaluation. And we liked each other, which is very important um, when you're choosing a guide for something this potentially intrusive. Um, so we liked each other. And then she explained to me the process and um, said, look, I'd like you to just think this over for a while and come back to me if you want to pursue it. And the process she explained was, if you move forward with this, you would set three intentions of what you would like to achieve with your MDMA guided therapy. And you would share those intentions with me. And as the drug brought up different thoughts, issues, ideas, feelings, reactions, I would steer you toward or back to your intentions. And, and that sounded like a, uh, like a very wise way to frame the day and um, potentially really positive. So I went on to do a lot more research. My doctor at Columbia did a lot more research and eventually I decided to do it. And my first guided trip was in, you know what? It was actually in the uh, fall of 2018, not 2017. So I misspoke on those dates earlier, 2018 we're talking about. So for me, uh, my intentions were to um, find a way to tamp down and live in a healthy way with my anxiety, to get it to a level where it wasn't hindering living my daily life. It had become a bit like a virus, um, really permeating my thoughts, my body, my tissue, um, my psyche at all times. Uh, there was no time when my anxiety wasn't present. So it really was hindering my life. That was intention one. Another intention was to address long held grief I had over losing my father in 2009, who I really felt understood me best in this world. We were very close. And finally, the third intention was to get over a, a fear I've had of death since I was a child because I am on track for a lung transplant, double lung transplant, the survival rate of which is 50% five years out. So that when that time comes, I need to be okay with the notion of my mortality. And that was part and parcel to addressing the anxiety that the drop in my lung capacity brought on. So what I can say about my experience with MDMA-guided therapy is that there is a, um, what happens when you are tripping on the drug, though you don't hallucinate. There's no hallucination with MDMA. What it does is it deregulates your limbic system. So your fight and flight reflexes 
are um, dialed back. So you have the ability to talk and think and feel emotions that you often subconsciously suppress, that those fight and flight reflexes subconsciously suppress. And by talking about them with a professional guide, you have the opportunity to reframe the way you think about things, reframe your fear and your anxiety. And in the process of reframing and realizing death isn't nothingness, it's peace. You form a new neural pathway, a literal new neural pathway. And so real change occurs in your brain. And then that change, those neural pathways are reinforced afterwards in follow-up integration conversations with the guide. And by talking those through, you deepen those pathways and it changes the way you feel and view the world. So that is actually what happens. So for me, I was able to shift my view of death, for example, from nothingness to total peace. I realized that my body, in terms of my anxiety, my body was not an antagonist, but it was in fact my partner. And by accepting it as my partner, I could accept the anxiety. And then vis-a-vis my father, I felt the sensation of his presence. And I realized that he is not absence, but he is always inside me and a part of me. And that feeling really resolved my grief, um, which had been quite paralyzing. So those were my three milestones from MDMA tripping. And I have to say it was quite profound. It really helped me. And for the Washington Post to tell this story was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that message received? And you know, what do you hope the big takeaways are from that article? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was really happy and honored that my editor at the Post um, took this on. She's the editor of the Health and Science section. You know, it's such a visceral experience to go through. It's very hard to put words to it in the first place. Um, So for me, as a writer, that was a challenge. And that's in part why I waited so long after my first MDMA experience to put it to paper, because I really just needed to kind of mull it over. The responses were broad ranging. You know, these days you have online responses, comments um, on the website, and it attracts all walks of life and all philosophies. And so to be perfectly honest, um, responses ranged from, I can't believe this individual doesn't have God in her life. How could she have thought that death was nothingness? Um, I am a religious woman. Um, I grew up Protestant and do have a relationship with God that had nothing to do with my impression of death as nothingness. So people make a lot of assumptions, but mostly the responses were, this is very courageous. Thank you for trying it in the first place and for sharing your story, because it's not a common modality for therapy these days. It's very much underground. And um, 
that's one reason I was so happy that a platform like the Washington Post chose to tell this story because my goal was to share the potential for change that this modality offers to people who need it. What advice would you give for someone who wants to learn more about this or be a part of one of these studies? Is that MAPS website the best place to go? Yes, definitely. You can go to MAPS, M-A-P-S dot org. And there are papers, research papers, there's information on the trials, there's information for people who want to get trained for the next workshop um, for training to begin. Um, There is, it's a terrific resource and I highly recommend that. And there's also a lot of information online by people who have done MDMA therapy, whether on, mostly on blogs about their own experience. Um, So you can get a sense of kind of the range of experiences that individuals have had. Mine certainly is not indicative of what it would be like for someone else. Um, It's very subjective, but you can find a lot of information out there, again, mostly on blogs. If you Google, you'll find it about people who have tried it themselves. I also recommend reading um, Michael Pollan's book because while he doesn't go into that much depth on MDMA guided therapy specifically, he talks a lot about what this type of therapy with other substances, LSD for example, or psilocybin mushrooms, how it works in the brain, and the positive outcomes they've had with terminally ill patients, veterans, um, people with incurable depression. So there are so many um, applications for this type of therapy, and he lays that out really very well. It's also a great read. He's a terrific writer. Tell me about your social, like how can they follow you or where, where would you direct them to learn more about you? Sure. So my Twitter is at Sarah with an H, Hogate, H-O-G-A-T-E. And you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. My byline is Sarah Hogate Bacon. Um, There are lots of Sarah Bacons out there. So I use my middle name and you can find my writing there. So I I write about uh, living with rare diseases from a variety of angles. Okay, um, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, but at the end of every of every episode of our podcast, we we ask the guests to share just a little parting bit of wisdom. You can do whatever you want, and then our battle cry for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. It's something that our CEO says at the end of every meeting: is "Go do good things." So if you can share a bit of that wisdom and then tell people to go do good things, we'll be done. Okay, can I take a minute to think about that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it could be like, you know, just being op- open-minded, you know, mm-hmm. don't to, to new therapies mm-hmm. and uh, do your research before you judge always, someone. You know? Always, always. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever you want to do. Um, let's see. Always do your research for sure. But there are Eastern and Western modalities. There are New Age modalities and they all have validity. Um, you need to... Uh, you know, learn about them and feel comfortable with them and decide with your caregivers, you know, your therapists, if they're the right thing for you. But stay open-minded because there are a lot of practices out there 
um, to learn about and that could be very helpful. And those range from Eastern to Western and traditional to very non-traditional. You know, in the case of MDMA guided therapy, yes, um, MDMA, also known as ecstasy, used to be a party drug, but it's also been used by psychotherapists since the 60s to heal people. And um, so if it's administered uh, responsibly and we all are responsible for our own decisions and you make your own decisions responsibly, there are a lot of potential ways of healing out there. So I wish you luck. Go do good things. <laughs>